Amen. So Acts chapter 9, starting verse 1, we read, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. So this morning, as we return to our verse-by-verse study through the book of Acts, we come to the ninth chapter. And what we're going to see here in the ninth chapter is the book of Acts, it kind of switches gears here again. And uh, now from here, we see the, right now in this chapter, we see the conversion of Paul, probably one of the most famous conversion stories in the entire world. But now going forward, we're going to see the gospel spreading into the world. And so verse 1, it says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Now, the last time we saw Saul of Tarsus, it was back in Acts chapter 8, verse 3. And you might want to flip over a page and take a look at that verse. Acts chapter 8, verse 3. It says, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. It says he made havoc of the church. And we know the last time when we looked at this verse, right, we we noted that the word havoc there is a word that described an army that was destroying a city. It was a word that described a wild animal ripping into its prey. It was a word that described a wild boar when he was injured or wounded. You know, would just go on this rampage, losing all sense of sanity. And Saul, he was entering every house, it says. He was probably breaking down the doors, breaching the doors like maybe a SWAT team. And dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Paul who Saul will later become known as. Paul later, he describes his actions before meeting Jesus in Acts chapter 26, verse 11, right? And it says, he says, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and, and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I mean, he punished believers, These are people that are our brothers and sisters that he went after. He punished believers in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. He would probably hold a knife to their throat um, 
and threatened them with death if they would not renounce, if they would not reject, deny, or blaspheme the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can bet that many wouldn't renounce their faith in Jesus. And Saul killed them like a wild animal ripping into its prey, like a wounded, injured, wild boar losing all sense of sanity. Paul went on a crazed rampage, wreaking havoc, seeking to destroy the early church. Now, it says in verse 1, Acts chapter 9, verse 1, Saul still breathing threats and murders. Now, this phrase is worded a little bit strange in the Greek, right? Literally, it says, still breathing in threats and murders. It's like the threats and thoughts of murder were under his breath. He was talking to himself. Uh, it's like he was feeding his own hatred for the church and for the disciples. And it causes him to just become enraged like a wild man, crazed, losing all sense of sanity. It says in verse 1, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Saul, he gets, this, he gets this idea, and he goes to the high priest, and he presents this idea to them, right? Now, the high priest at this time, it's Caiaphas. It's the same, the very same high priest that orchestrated the crucifixion of Jesus. It says in verse 2, And Saul asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. He asked the high priest for what would be equivalent maybe to arrest warrants, Right? And Saul received them from the high priest, also the chief priest in the Sanhedrin. Verse 2, And Saul asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, the church at this time is referred to as the way. Uh, it's the earliest name used for the church and used for Christians within the church. They were followers of the way. That, that phrase, that term, the way, is used five times in the book of Acts. And what it means is Christianity is more than a belief. It's more than a creed or a set of rules. It's more than just doctrines and teachings. What it means is those of the way follow Jesus as a way of life. They lived in obedience to his word. They were living their lives as ambassadors for Christ, right, and his kingdom. They lived their lives understanding that they were witnesses to the world of the truth of the gospel. And Paul is bent on destroying the way. He sought and received arrest warrants from the high priest to bring those, verse 2, found who were of the way, whether men or women, to bring them bound to Jerusalem in order to face trial and presumably execution if they refused to deny Christ. Why? I mean, why was Paul willing to go so far out of his way to persecute the church, to persecute Christians, Damascus is 140 miles northeast of Jerusalem. Well, you know, what was going on in 
Paul's head that he was willing to do that. You know, maybe Paul saw himself as a Phineas, right? Remember back in Numbers 22 through 24, and you can maybe fl start flipping back to Numbers, but you remember back Numbers 22, 24, Balak wanted to curse the people of Israel, so he tries to hire Balaam. And you remember that Balaam blessed the people three times instead of cursing them, and that really made Balak mad. And Balak said, you know, I would have given you so much gold and silver, you know, but the Lord has kept you back from being enriched. He's kept you back from being honored. And as you read on, you find out that Balaam apparently tells Balak, you know, he says, you know, I, I can't curse the children of Israel, but I can tell you how you can cause them to bring a curse upon themselves from God. Right? Just have your girls, your daughters go down amongst the men of Israel and say, you know, let us show you now how we worship our gods. Because it, in their worship of the pagan gods, it involved very licentious acts of sexual immorality. And if you read on in Numbers 25, and that's where we want you to turn, turn to Numbers 25. Keep your fingers there in, in Acts 9, but turn to Numbers 25. You read verse 1. It says, Now Israel remained in acacia groves, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against them. Verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented uh, to his brethren, a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Verse 7. Now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went after the men, the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. And those who died in the plague were 24,000. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. So maybe Saul, you know, he's going after the church. Maybe he sees himself as a Phineas, zealous, acting out, uh, on behalf of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1.23 says, here comes that slide. 1 Corinthians 1.23 says, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. 
the cross was an offense to Paul because we read in Deuteronomy 21 that whoever's hung on a tree is accursed by God. And the followers of Jesus were preaching that Jesus was crucified, right? That he died and he was buried and he rose again. They preached that he was alive, that he was the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And anyone takes away the sins of anyone who's willing to place their faith in him. And Paul, being a Pharisee, surely thought, no way, not on my watch, right? Righteousness comes through keeping the law, not through some heretic who died on the cross. So Paul sets out to put a stop to this heresy. Paul said regarding his life before Christ, Galatians 1.14, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the tradition of my fathers. Paul was committed. He was sincere. He thought and believed in his heart that he was giving service to God. And it's here that we see a person can be very sincere. Can They can sincerely think that they're serving God, even think that they're in the center of God's will, and yet be sincerely deceived. And those people that are in that state are often a danger to the church. So many people can believe that they're serving God, but be very far away from Him. Even Christians can believe that they're walking with the Lord, serving the Lord, and that everything's just going great. But they've strayed. They've left their first love. They're living on yesterday's victories. They've drifted from those early days when they sang songs to Jesus and devoured his word. You know, but now that desire to serve the Lord and put him first in all things is no longer a burning desire in their heart. In fact, you know, it may not even be a smoldering ember for many Christians today. We must ever be on guard because we can deceive ourselves. James, the half-brother of Jesus, exhorts us in James 1.22, saying, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That's God's word. That's his command and his encouragement to each of us individually. And that's the way we need to hear it this morning, as a command, as an encouragement. And I would encourage you, please, don't, don't allow it to just go in one ear and out the other. You know, let it sink into your hearts this morning and take root. We're to be doers of the word and not hearers only lest we deceive ourselves. Paul was so far away from God, he didn't even realize how far away he was. And that can happen to each of us if we're not daily, actively seeking to walk with the Lord, reading the word, thinking it through and applying it to our lives, heeding the warnings found in the Bible, going forward with the exhortations that we see in the word, engaging in prayer, daily walking in obedience and surrender, doing those things that are pleasing to the Lord, spending meaningful time sitting at his feet. You know, we need to, you know, make no mistake about it. 
There is nothing more important for us as a child of God than to spend time at the feet of Jesus, right? Drinking him in, being conformed into his image. The writer to the book of Hebrews warns us very clearly. Hebrews 2, 1 says, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. If we neglect or give little attention to the things that we've heard and learned, we will drift. And one day before you know it, before we know it, we'll be so far away from God and we will fail to realize just how far away we are from him and what he wants for us. Paul, at this time, thought that he was right with God through doing, right? Through keeping laws and tradition, through keeping rules and regulations. But he failed to understand what God really wanted. But he's going to find out. Verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Paul says in Acts chapter 26 that this happened um, at midday. This light that shone all around him was brighter than the sun at midday, right? Well, now how bright is that, you might ask? Well, Try looking into the sun at 12 noon on a summer's day and you'll find out pretty quickly just how bright this light was. I think when we read this verse, when we read this passage, I think Paul needs to be an encouragement to many of us. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. All right, praise the Lord. The story doesn't stop there. The very next verse, 1 Timothy 1.16, starts out with however. I'm so thankful for the howevers of life because it means that's not the end of it. There's more. Paul says, it's not an exaggeration saying that I was the worst of the worst. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life, right? For those people that we run across who say, I can't be saved. God can't forgive me. We, you don't know the things that I have done. We can confidently say, you know what? If God can save Paul, who persecuted the church and murdered Christians, right? He certainly, surely can save you. What a privilege that is to let people know that they're not so far gone, that salvation is something that's out of reach for them. It's impossible for them. What a tremendous privilege it is to reassure people that when they place their faith in Jesus, that their sins are forgive, forgiven and they become a new creation. You know, all things have passed away. All things are made new. Clean slate. What an overwhelming privilege it is to know that Christ has entrusted us with that message, with the ministry of reconciliation. And, and my prayer again is that we would never squander that privilege. And yet on the other hand, maybe you have a loved one, maybe a coworker, maybe a neighbor 
whose heart is so hard to the gospel, and you think to yourself, you know, there's just no way. You know what? They're never going to listen. They're never going to receive. They're never going to hear. They're never going to turn. You know what? Don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. God has ways of shining a light and ways of breaking through unexpectedly, um, unpredictably, ways of breaking through and shining a light on the hardest heart. If God can reach Paul, he can reach anyone. And our encouragement is not to give up, to keep praying, right? Your prayers are never wasted. God hears every one of our prayers. Keep sharing the word with these people. God has ways of reaching people and planting the word in their heart like a time bomb to go off at some unexpected time. Verse 4, it says, Then he, speaking of Paul, fell to the ground. I mean, imagine in your mind, I, I think it's just so beautiful to understand that Saul falls down before the glory of Jesus. And we get the saying, he was knocked off his high horse from this passage. Now we want to be students of the word and uh, understand that there's no place that says that Saul was riding a horse. He probably takes his 140-mile journey um, from Jerusalem to Damascus. He's probably taking this journey on foot. Maybe at most he's riding a donkey. Be that as it may, we read in verse 4, then he fell on the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The reality is what's going on here is that as Saul falls to the ground, everything within him has failed him. He no longer possesses any strength. You know, he's probably trying hard just to maintain control of bodily functions. He's 100% in survival mode right now. And I think that something else that we should understand is sometimes, you know, it's so easy to read into a verse. You know, it's so easy to hear Jesus speaking harshly here, saying uh, with a very gruff and disappointed tone of voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know, but Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. I think each time we see Jesus repeating a name, he says it with such unbelievable compassion. Martha, Martha, there in Luke 10, 41. Or, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, as he's weeping over the city. There in Luke 13, 34. I think when Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's so unbelievably compassionate and gentle and loving. It's interesting that Jesus said to Saul, that, that he was persecuting him. Saul was persecuting the church, right? Believers within the church were the target of his persecution. But Jesus said that Saul was persecuting him. And this is the insightful realization. The lesson that God intends for us to learn from this is when you and I are persecuted or wronged by others, Jesus uh, takes it personally. And any time 
you speak against a fellow believer. Act unbecomingly towards a brother or sister. Anytime you engage in gossip, backbiting, or speaking negatively about someone in the church, Jesus takes exception to that. Right? We need to be so very careful not to find fault in others. We need to be loving, gentle, kind towards others, just as Jesus is towards us. But I also find it interesting that Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why, Saul? Why? You know, we can find ourselves fighting against God, not giving in to something that he tells you to do, you know, ignoring something that he has spoken to you, insisting on doing what you want to do, those things that you think is right. In reality, that's just living in rebellion, right? And Jesus would say, why? What on earth do you think you're gaining by that? You know, as if you could possibly win against his will. Jesus would say to each of his followers, just surrender. Just surrender to me and be at peace. Verse 5, and he said, Saul says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Saul says, who are you, Lord? And the reply is, I am Jesus. Jesus was a fairly common name back then. Lots of moms named their kids, named their boys Jesus, you know, which means Jehovah is salvation. But in this situation, Saul knew immediately exactly who this Jesus was, and he's been persecuting him. You know, I wonder if Saul, in Saul's mind, if he immediately thought of Stephen, the first martyr of the church. You know, I wonder if in that instant, Saul thought back to the event and saw Jesus in place of Stephen as he's replaying the event surrounding Stephen's death in his mind. I wonder if he saw Jesus there. You know, or else someone or someone else that, that he bound and drug out of a house. I just wonder if he recalled putting other believers to death and in his mind seeing the face of Jesus as he's putting them to death instead of their faces. In that instance, did he see Jesus and remember compelling believers to blaspheme him, but they refused. And then Jesus says to Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. You know, the goads was a sharp stick that um, would be used to jab the back legs of the ox to keep him moving forward. It was a painful process that the farmer would use to keep the ox going, pulling the plow. And what were the goads that Paul was kicking at? I believe very strongly that it was Stephen's defense. Saul knew every word that Stephen said was true. How the brothers of Joseph hated him, betrayed him, how they wanted to kill him. But God had a plan in it to save the nation of Israel through Joseph. And it wasn't until the second time that Joseph was made known to his brothers after he rose from the dead, so to speak. That's when they recognized God's deliverance was to come through Joseph. 
Saul knew that Stephen was telling the truth when he described how Moses was sent by God to deliver Israel, and yet he was rejected. Speaking of Moses, Stephen said in his defense, whom our fathers would not uh, obey but rejected. Saul knew that everything that Stephen said was 100% true, that they rejected God's servant. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They rejected God's servants and just wanted to be like the rest of the world. Saul knew that it was true when Stephen said Acts 7, 52, 53. He knew it was true statement. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, speaking of Jesus, of whom you now have become betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Saul, along with the religious leaders, thought they were right with God, and yet, you know, they had no idea just how far they drifted. They became the murderers and the betrayers of the Messiah. And Saul knew it was all true. So often we can refuse to hear the truth. We can choose to discount it saying things like, you know what, that's, that's just not the case. It's not true. We can reject it by saying, that's not for me, but I hope my wife or I hope my husband, I hope my kids are listening right now. We can disregard it by saying, who is he that he thinks he can speak to me that way? Listen. God is not going to force anyone into service. He's not going to force you to be obedient. He's not going to force us to surrender. He wants you. He wants me. He wants us to surrender and serve him with a loving heart, from a willing heart. You know, I heard a story once of a man. He was in a restaurant and he was choking on a chicken bone. And the waiter sees what's going on and the waiter just yells out, is there a doctor in the house? And the doctor over in the corner stands up. He walks over. He assesses the situation and skillfully removes the chicken bone that was lodged in this gentleman's throat. He saved the man's life. And the man looked at him and said, thank you. Thank you. What do I owe you? And the doctor said, I don't know. How much was it worth when you were choking? We can never forget. I think it's important that we, we must never forget where we were headed before we met Jesus Christ. I was on my way to hell. Man, I was wholeheartedly just as happy as a lark, running as fast as my little old feet would carry me. And I suppose the same is true for each of you. Right? I deserve nothing but judgment and death. But Jesus gave his life in exchange for mine. He paid my debt. He took my penalty. He endured the cross. He absorbed for me the wrath of God that I deserved. And he took my sin and he gave me his righteousness. I owe Jesus not only my life, but I owe him my eternity. To give him anything less than a thankful heart and a surrendered life, ready and willing to do whatever he asked me to do. Anything less is just to cheapen what he did for me. Saul asked, who are you, Lord? 
And I think Saul knew what Stephen said was absolutely true. And I think it was Saul's heart's desire to actually know the Lord. I think this is evidenced by his sudden and absolute surrender. Later, Paul will write regarding his desires. He says in Philippians 3, verse 8 through 10, he said, Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That was Paul's desire. Acts 9, verse 6, Paul lying on the ground before the glory of the Lord, trembling and, and astonished, asked, Lord, what do you want me to do? And again, Paul writes in Philippians 3, 12, verse 14, regarding his life after meeting Christ. Paul says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. That's what God wants each of us to do. That's God's heart for us. Later in the book of Acts, we're going to see Paul says to the brethren at Ptolemaeus, right? When Agabus takes Paul's belt and binds his hands and his feet and then says to Paul, this is what's waiting for you in Jerusalem. And all the brethren are standing around and they're pleading with Paul not to go. Then Paul says, Acts 21, verse 13, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to be, also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Faith in God pleases him. And it leads to surrender. Surrender leads to obedience. Obedience leads to a deeper communion. A deeper communion leads to greater revelation of who Jesus is and what God's heart is as well. That's what our hearts are actually longing for. At least that's what our hearts should be longing for. An insatiable desire to go deeper with our Lord Jesus Christ. That's actually the longing of God's heart. Greater communion with his children. A.W. Tozer said, the reason why so, uh, the reason why many are still troubled still seeking, still making little progress is because they haven't yet come to the end of themselves. We're still trying to give orders, interfering with God's work within us. The greatness of a man is measured by the surrender of his life. Let me say that again. The greatness of a man or woman is measured by the degree of surrender in their life. 
That's just the God's honest truth. And it's the only measure that actually means anything. This is something that the Lord has spoken to me many times in the past. He wants me to ask him, Lord, what, what do you want me to do? And then to honestly, sincerely add to that, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Remember, that's what Samuel said when the Lord was calling out to him. It's an attitude of surrender to whatever the Lord um, would say before he even says it. Lord, I'm surrendered to it. Just tell me what to do. I'll do it. And I think the Lord would have us search our hearts in regard to the level of our surrender, right? What value do you place upon the work that he accomplished for you at the cross? I mean, honestly, what value do you place on it? For me, you know, I know that if there's anyone I wouldn't speak to, if there's any place I wouldn't go, if there's any precondition I place on serving Jesus, then it just simply means that I'm not surrendered. Right? And I believe the same is true for each of us. I think the definition of a true believer is someone who has ceased seeking to do and accomplish their will and desires in life and has set their heart, mind, soul, and strength on accomplishing what the Lord desires for them. In verse 6, so he, again, speaking of Saul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Once again, we see Jesus giving instructions on what to do, one step at a time. I don't need step two, three, four, or five if I'm not taking step one, in obedience to him. In verse 7, And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. I'm sure that the guys that were with Saul, they were sympathetic to the mission. They were after believers too. None of them, none of them, including Saul, none of them were looking for Jesus. And all of a sudden, Saul has this experience with the risen Savior. And the other guys stood speechless speechless. They're just dumbfounded. Hearing a voice, the Greek word means that they hear a sound, right? It's, it's a sound. It's, it's where we get um, a phonograph. It's phonia is the Greek word. It's where we get the word phonograph. And, and it's just a sound, and they don't see anyone, right? They heard something they saw a brilliant, overwhelmingly bright light. They saw and heard Saul speaking, but they didn't see anyone else. And you know what? Oftentimes, that's the case. The friends you run with, the people you hang out with, those who are sympathetic to your thing, you know what? They won't and don't get it when the Lord speaks to you and calls you to draw near to him, calls you to quit swearing, cursing, quit drinking, quit. You make up the quit. <laughs> Oftentimes our friends will think we're crazy, brainwashed, or going off the deep end. And I can tell you, 
And I'm willing to tell the world, you know, I want to be crazy about Jesus. I want to be crazy in love with Jesus. The truth is, I needed to be brainwashed. And as far as being off the deep end, man, I want to be in the deep end. I want to be over my head, completely overwhelmed and drowning in the Holy Spirit. Isn't that really what you want too? That's what we all want. That's what we all should desire. Verse 8, then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. Saul enters Damascus, a changed man. He had intended to enter into Damascus like a whirlwind, rounding up, you know, believers with an avenging fury. But instead, he enters Damascus being led by the hand. He's blind. He's helpless, you know, blinded by the glory of the Lord. And this encounter with Jesus shook Saul in such a way, shook him so much that he couldn't eat or drink for three days. And I think what God is doing in Saul's life, it was something that was so beautiful. Saul was spiritually blind. And then the light of the glory of Jesus shone on him. And then he was physically blind. You know, it's like photography. You get film. It's in a canister. It's in the dark. You carefully put it in your camera, keeping it in the dark until just the right time. And at just the right time, you press the button, which causes the shutter to open, allowing light to come in. And then the shutter closes very quickly and the film's in the dark again. And you're very careful not to overexpose the film, not to double expose the film so that you don't get a distorted image. And then sometime later, you take that film into the dark room to develop it. You put it, you know, you, you wash it in the fixer and then you place it into the water bath to ensure the image is properly imprinted on the film protecting a faithful, uh, producing a faithful image. Saul was in darkness when traveling on the road to Damascus when he was exposed to the light. Then he was in darkness again. And I think it was in order to imprint the Savior faithfully upon his heart. You know, I often wonder how clearly and how faithfully Jesus can be seen in my life. You know, is there love? mercy and grace seen in my life? Is there a surrender and obedience that's evident in my life, evident to everyone who's looking on from afar? To whatever degree those things are seen in me, I don't want to be satisfied with that. You know, when it comes to Jesus, you've heard me say it before, I don't want much. I just want more. You know, I want it to, I want him to be faithfully imprinted on every fiber of my being. And I want it to be my goal, and I encourage you to make it your goal. Let's make it our goal in life to seek to know Him, to seek to know the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering, which happens to be the greatest fellowship we could ever have with Jesus, the suffering servant. And then make it our goal wherever we're at, not to be satisfied there, but to press on, 
that we may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of us. Let us forget those things which are behind us. You know, in my mind, it's always, what's behind me? Man, I want to forget all the failures, which there are many. But forget the victories too and press on. Press on towards the goal. Reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Press on towards the goal. Pressing towards the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That prize is one day we're going to hear come up here. And the window in heaven, the door in heaven will be open and there will be a trumpet and we'll hear the voice of an archangel and we'll be in his presence. And man, my heart is for the remaining days of my life. I don't know how many there are. David said, teach me to count uh, my days. Give me a heart of wisdom, O Lord. But I tell you what, for the remaining days of my life, for the remaining days of your life, Let's go for it with Jesus. Pedal to the metal. What do we have to lose? Leaving behind everything that would hold us back and everything and anything that would hinder us from running the race, everything that would keep us from going deeper with Jesus, anything that gets between me and Jesus is an idol. It's idolatry. It's sin. God's heart for each of us to just run after him with our whole heart. It's God's heart for you. And you know, if the Lord's speaking to you, you're here this morning, you're watching online, if the Lord's speaking to you this morning, respond to him. Please don't let it go in one ear and out the others. Don't be the same person after this study that you were before this study. Let it sink deep into your heart and take root, bearing fruit to the glory of God. It's what God desires for each of us this morning. Let's pray. Father, Lord, like we sang early this morning, Lord, light a fire in us. Light a fire in us, Lord. God, cause us to run after you like never before. God, open our eyes to see the depth of relationship that you desire for us, Lord. Open our eyes to see those things that are keeping us from a relationship with you, a deeper relationship with you. Help us to see how worthless those things actually are, how in, in the scheme of, of eternity, how nothing those things are. Lord, with the remaining days of our lives, Lord, help us seek you with all our heart mind, soul, and strength. Love you that way and love our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, just being gracious and kind to people around us because we reflect you. We ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen.